Good evening, uh, everybody. Um, Julie, thank you so much for, for leading us so appropriately uh, up, up to this point. Um, friends, I come before you this evening as uh, somebody who finds just reading the Book of Romans uh, a pretty difficult and challenging experience. Uh, so a few months back when Christoph said, Dan, we're, we're going to be preaching together the Book of Romans as a team from beginning to end, obviously to his face, I said, oh, that's a brilliant idea, and I'm really excited about it, but, but actually inwardly I, w- I was pretty daunted um, by, by the whole prospect, um, and probably less than, than enthusiastic. One of the great difficulties in preaching through a book like Romans is that you have to try and maintain the big picture the whole way through. You've got to try and follow the thread of Paul's arguments from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 12. How do you do that when there's six of us all preaching and and taking it in turns? And sometimes we're preaching uh, with huge gaps in between. I think we started... Uh, at the end of September, got our way through in October, and then there was a big break through Faith Academy and, and the Christmas services. Well, one of the ways we thought we would uh, get over that hurdle was that at the beginning of each and every sermon, we would spend just a little bit of time recapping and summarizing everything uh, that's gone on before. Well, that's all very well, but uh, in a few months' time, I'm going to be back here probably trying to help you through Romans chapter 12. So the thought of in an opening paragraph condensing neatly everything that we need to know about the previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans is also something that I find a little bit daunting. But uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. At the moment, we've only chapters 1 to 4 to deal with. And we'll do that uh, in just a wee second. But maybe before we go any further... Could we bow our heads and just pray, and we'll ask God to help us all. Heavenly Father, Lord of Lords, creator of all that we see, the God who would choose to make his home in our hearts, still us now. Holy Spirit, help us. Let us be ready to listen, to take in the Word of God deep into the core of our being, and be ready to apply it to our lives, a living, breathing Word of God that has the power to change. Amen. If you're looking for the strapline for the whole book, the one verse at the heart of everything, you'll find it in chapter 1, verse 16. This is where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul, with a forensic analysis, is going through a detailed defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is writing to Roman Christians. These are believers who are made up of Jewish converts and Gentile converts. At this time, these groups were probably meeting in separate house churches or maybe the Jewish converts. They could still have been meeting in their synagogues. But clearly there was a big tension between them. And the issue at stake was Gentile adherence or lack of it to the Jewish law. Do you have to adopt the Jewish identity 
to become a Christian? Must you be circumcised? Do you need to observe Jewish Sabbath and food laws? These were the burning issues of the day that were dividing that community, and it was into this environment that Paul was writing his letter. And if we're honest, the early chapters of the book are pretty morbid. They talk an awful lot about sin and God's judgment. And Paul lays out that when it comes to sin, it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, we're all in this together. First of all, he talks to decadent Rome. They may not have the Jewish history and tradition, this acquaintance of God over many centuries, but they do have a God-given conscience, and they can open their eyes, and they can see the work of creation all around them. So they don't have an excuse. They have known about God's holiness and God's power. But they have chosen to worship idols. And Paul tells us that they have been given over to immorality and other forms of antisocial behavior. Well, what about the Jews? They've had this special relationship with God for centuries. Those Jews who prided themselves in the knowledge that they have and the moral instruction that they give to others. Well, Paul says that the very laws that they teach, they also disobey. So Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. You're equally disadvantaged. No one naturally seeks God. No one is inherently righteous. No one instinctively does good. So in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul lays it on the line. We have already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. And the consequence of sin, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, punishment and death. So for them and for us, every protest is silenced. The whole world is guilty and accountable to God. So I told you it was a pretty bleak and, uh, and a morbid start. But it does begin to get better. The thread turns in chapter 3, verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God has been made known. Though all have fallen short of God's glory, all can have a righteousness to be made right, worthy in God's sight, by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is taking us on a transition. First couple of chapters of Romans, he outlines the need for justification. It's universal. We all need to be justified before God. Then he shows us in chapters 3 and 4 the way of justification. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And now in tonight's passage, he begins to open up the results, the fruits, the blessings of justification. So far it's been pretty much doom and gloom. The skies over our head have been dark. The clouds have been heavy. And there is an anxiousness within us. As we listen off into the distance for that first rumble of thunder. Or look up to the heavens to see that first fork of lightning heading in our direction. But suddenly... The name of Jesus is mentioned. 
The clouds begin to depart. Darkness recedes and gives way to light. The oppressive weight of the heavy skies is lifted and now we feel free. There is nothing to separate us from the light and the life that is above. We're not condemned. We're justified. And justification is the complete opposite of condemnation. It's not just that our debts have been cancelled, but we have a righteous and worthy standing before Almighty God. And so we, we open our Bibles now at chapter, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Paul is saying, because of all these things that I've already been telling you about, therefore, we have been justified by faith. And we have peace with God because of Jesus. Peace. Peace. A universal human obsession. My, my day job is as a GP. Uh, and I see people striving for peace every day in my surgery. Hungering after it. But invariably looking for it in all the wrong places. Maybe they're chasing after that temporary tranquility or calmness that comes through the well-being of our children or our own perceived good physical health. Or maybe it's satisfaction at the end of the day of a job well done. Or maybe it's that comfort of seeing a very healthy bank balance at the end of each month. Well, I've also seen more often than I would like to how quickly all of that can be taken away in an instant. A certain diagnosis, an accident, maybe a, just a trivial chain of events. And it's all gone. And all sense of peace is lost. And Paul is talking about something much, much greater here. He's talking about peace with God. Wasn't that one of the prophet's favorite names for Jesus? Don't worry, he's coming, he's on the way. The Prince of Peace. You see, before Jesus, it's not just that we were far off from God. Not just distant or aloof. We were God's enemies. God could not stand us because of the sin in our lives. And because of the sin in our lives, we could not stand him because of his holiness. But now, because of Jesus, there is no more hostility. No sin blocking that relationship. And this, friends, compared with what Paul has been talking about in the first few chapters of Romans, is a wonderful, incredible, fantastic transformation. This image of reconciliation, this broken relationship, Recovered by Jesus. It's like a dad going out on a dark, wet night to a dark, wet street in the dark, wet side of town to take home a son or daughter who spurned him and take, turned their backs on him and taking them right back into the heart of the home, into the family. Verse 2, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's not like the nervous apprentice 
on the television program, gaining temporary access into the boardroom of Lord Sugar, just waiting for those words, you're fired. We have gained our access, our introduction, and now we stand, continually stand, in grace. It's not a temporary audience in God's court. It's not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. Grace, free, unmerited favor, unconditional love. Compared with the early chapters of Romans, friends, again, this is an incredible transformation. And Paul encourages the reader to respond appropriately to this peace and to this grace, to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, this certain hope that once you've been justified and once you've been reconciled, the day will come when you will share in the full measure of God's glory. And Paul goes on to say, friends, don't just rejoice in in the good stuff but you should also be rejoicing in your sufferings. And the commentators will tell us the sufferings that he's talking about, it's not the trials and tribulations of everyday life that we all know. It's the suffering that comes particularly because we call ourselves Christians and we identify with Jesus Christ. It's persecution. And for first century Christians, suffering was the rule. It would not have been the exception And that is the case for many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Topically at the moment, we can think of those in southern Sudan, in Pakistan, and Coptic Christians in Ethiopia. And maybe for us, as we seek to be a gospel-centered church, and we get our hands dirty at the cold face of God's work here in Ballyhackamore, maybe in the next few years, we might know our share of suffering for the sake of the gospel too. And when it comes, what do we do? Do we endure it with stoic fortitude? Do we grit our teeth and bear it? No. Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice in our sufferings. Later on in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to talk a little bit about us being co-heirs with Christ that we share in his sufferings now to make us better able to share in his glory later on. So we see that suffering for the name of Jesus will lead to glory in the end. But, Paul says, it leads to maturity in the meantime. We have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And nobody can take that away from us. But we still have indwelling sin in our hearts. This process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, it is a lifelong journey. And we carry that baggage of sin with us, I'm afraid, all the way to that journey's end. Perseverance leads to character. A character changed. It's the quality of a person who has been tested and passed the test. No longer a raw recruit, but a tempered veteran. Suffering can do that. And this character leads to hope. We can trust in the future promises of God because we see how he is getting us through our current troubles. 
We see his help now and we know that in the future we can, uh, we, we can be guaranteed that too. But ultimately Paul is saying the reason that we have to hope so confidently to trust God's promises, it's actually all about love. We're so convinced beyond any doubt of the love that God has for each one of us. He shows us that in two ways. He shows us that subjectively and also through the experience of history. Subjectively, verse 5, hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. This is our experiencing of God's love in the here and now, one of the works of the Holy Spirit. But Paul also shows us from history love's ultimate expression. He poses a question. Would you die for somebody? And he answers it, for a righteous man, probably not. For a really good man, possibly. There might be somebody out there that would dare to die for such a person. But for your enemy, absolutely not. We've just had uh, Christmas, and at Christmas time we give each other gifts. And I imagine if, uh, if your house is anything like mine, the big, the big gift, the important ones, the costliest ones, the ones that you spend more time over, you give those to the people that you really, really love. The people that maybe you deem are, are worthy of, of your love. And generosity. And so if one of the part of the essence of love is this giving, then Jesus gave the costliest gift to the most unworthy recipient, sinners who are enemies of God. So be sure of it, friends. Hold on to it, treasure it. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. God loves you. Because while you are still a sinner and an enemy of God, Jesus Christ died for you. Have you been saved? I'm sure we've all been asked that question at some time or another on the streets of Belfast. You don't have to walk those streets too long or somebody will come up to you, maybe with a megaphone, and thrusting a tract in your direction. Well, Paul here in these next few verses is saying that actually there's not a straightforward answer to that question. Have you been saved, son? Well, Paul would say yes and no. Yes, verse 9, we have been justified by blood. Through Jesus, we can be saved from our sin and the judgment of God. Just on a side, justified by blood, Jesus' blood. This is not some kind of amnesty, a pardon without principle. It's not God overlooking our sin or forgetting it. It may not have cost us anything, but it came at a very, very great cost to Jesus. So yes, we're saved. We've been justified by blood. But we have not been delivered 
from indwelling sin. I've been a Christian since the age of uh, 13. So I've had almost 20 years to practice and to get this right. But every day from that day to this and probably every day onward, I have sinned in thought and word and deed. So we're still carrying indwelling sin around with us. And nor have we been given our new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth to come. We are, as they say, living in the now, but the not yet. Our home is in heaven, and that's where our hearts should be too. But for the moment, we continue on in this life. So at present, we are half saved. But on that future day of judgment, when Jesus returns, how can we still be sure that when it comes to the crunch, that all this stuff Paul's been reassuring us about, that this access and this justification is still going to apply to our lives. What Paul is saying here is that God has already done the difficult thing. The hard part's over. He reconciled himself to us while we were still his enemies. How much more will he finish off our salvation when we are presented before him as reconciled friends. So we have firm grounds to declare with Paul, as he does at the end of verse 10, not that we are saved, but that we shall be saved, fully saved. And this, of course, for Paul, is another cause for great, great rejoicing. So what what do we do with all of this? All of these wonderful words which apply to us. Access, peace, reconciliation, grace, justification, love. What difference does it make? Friends, I I don't want to shock you, you too much, but even elders in the Presbyterian Church and elders who occasionally might get up and preach from the, the front of church struggle to read their Bibles sometimes. Busy work, kids at a very labor-intensive stage, friends, family, church commitments, not to mention ours, sitting and vegetating in front of a television set. No excuses, and uh, I suspect many of you can identify with that. But I have committed to looking at these verses in detail and having them turned over in my head for the past month or so, I can tell you it's been a very rich and rewarding experience. As if I needed reminding, I've been reminded God is great. God's promises are great. And it is a great and a wonderful thing to be able to stand here and call myself a Christian. So again, I ask the question, what difference does this make to my life? When I was a little boy, from about as early as I can remember, I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor. And as those plans began to take shape and I had some ambitions, I suppose I might have come up with what you would call a three-part plan. 
The first step was to work really hard and to get a, a very prestigious job. The second plan was with the fruits of my labor to buy a nice big house somewhere. And the third part of the plan was once I'd got sorted in my job and settled in my house, well then maybe at that stage I'd take a look around the neighborhood and maybe I'd try and find a church for myself and my family, somewhere where uh, we could worship, somewhere where we could enjoy fellowship, and maybe in time even play our part. But I think during the university years, these priorities, they seem to get switched around and changed a little bit. So by the time I left university, my first priority was actually finding a church. Find a place where the gospel is preached. Find a place to serve. Find a place to care and be cared for. Second priority was then to find a house in the neighborhood and move into that community. And the third priority was then just to find a job that was compatible with steps one and two. Perhaps the most significant experience in all of this, in this change of direction, change of priority, was a conversation that I had with somebody as a maybe a third or fourth year medical student in Aberdeen. We were running a mission and a guy came along who was helping us with uh, some of the worship and some of the evangelism. And it turned out that this guy, he was maybe about 10 years older than me, and he had trained as a doctor as well. In fact, not only had he trained as a doctor, but he then went on to work for his first year um, as, a, as a junior doctor. He enjoyed his year. He wasn't having any problems, but he really felt that at this moment in his life, the call of God was to take a step away from medicine and to be working in full-time Christian work with students and young people. So that's how he ended up with, uh, with us in Aberdeen. And we had a conversation where he told me about how he was struggling to come to terms with his old medic friends these days. See, at university, together, they'd all been really, really passionate about their faith they ran the Christian unions, they organized missions, and they met up often to pray and to sing and uh, just to talk about Jesus. But as they all continued to meet up, maybe at birthdays or weddings um, or at reunions, he was saddened because he found that the fragrance of Jesus, which had once so marked their lives, was becoming less and less apparent. For these young professionals, the chat was no longer about you know, what was happening in their church life or their prayer life or what God was teaching them in the Bible as it once had been. Now they talked about skiing holidays and fancy cars. They talked about job promotions and tax bills. They talked about working longer so that they could buy bigger homes. So in 2003, more by the grace of God and probably also the intervention of a certain Stanley Mills, rather than any true intentionality on our part, we found ourselves here in Kirkpatrick and we stayed. In 2006, 
we bought a house in the neighbourhood in Belmont Park and we moved in. And in 2008, I managed to get a permanent job in the area compatible with steps one and two. So on the surface, you would think all is going well, the boxes have been ticked and all the objectives have been achieved. But you know, the world is very, very seductive and the focus needs to continually be brought back. And maybe, maybe this is really something that, that God wants to say to us today because it's very similar to what Christoph said to us this morning. And Christoph and I hadn't planned that. It's a very, very similar message. So this is maybe something that we need to hear. We need to remind ourselves that we are saved and that the greater glory is yet to come. I hope that as we've thought about these things this evening, may we in some way be having the joy of our salvation being restored. Peace, grace, reconciliation and glory. These great words that apply to our life because of Jesus. So if the world starts telling you that there is something better out there for you than all of this, it is lying. And do not allow yourselves to be deceived. Maybe we can all look back <clears throat> at our lives and see a time when we had a wide-eyed wonder about Jesus, about everything that he did for us and the promises of God. Perhaps now the wonder is not so wide-eyed. Friends, remember Jesus hasn't changed. The promises of God haven't changed. It's us. We've changed. We allow our lives to get cluttered up with so much other stuff. Come back. Come back to this passage and remind yourself of the richness and the fullness of life lived with Jesus Christ. Come back and read this passage anytime you need to refresh your memory. You see, I want my life. I want my family's life. I want the life of my church family to be defined not by the jobs that we do or the houses that we live in, but by the God that we serve. But I don't know if I'm strong enough to do it on my own. I don't know if my family's strong enough to do it on our own. I don't know if any of us can do it on our own. Too much in love with this good life. The here and now. Too comfortable. So that before long, we do the same and we act just like everybody else. But together, if we consciously strive to live in community, a community that is defined by peace, grace, love, and a reconciled relationship with God and with each other, and I think we will really begin to get somewhere. 
That's the sort of community that Paul is talking about we can have because of what Jesus has done. And a community like that would also reflect the grace of Christ. Under the streets and the houses around about us. A gospel-centered church reaching out to people with God's love. I think that is also something that Paul would be telling us to rejoice about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, will you plant these truths about peace and access and love and grace deep, deep into our souls. May our love for you and our desire to serve you be the thing that defines every other aspect of our lives. The choices we make, the way we spend our time, and the way we treat other people. Thank you, thank you, that because of Jesus, we are reconciled friends with you. Amen.